0: You do not want to see my anger. My anger is massive, all encompassing. Being accused of three disses disloyal, dishonest, disrespectful.
1: I don't disagree that there's evil in the world. I do disagree that we're powerless against it.
2: You know, if I was a girl, you'd get tough. She's
0: a girl, so you'd be butt ass ugly. She's getting married? To a Bobby? No, no, not a Bobby, Tim.
2: He's a guard. He guards
1: the Queen. Yeah, well, then I can see how they've got a lot in fucking common! Try to
2: find a common thing that binds us all. Fright. is the common
0: thing. See, we are all of us, Batman. <laughs>
3: Welcome to Inside Oz, the original Oz review podcast. As always, I'm your host Neil Thompson. Glad to have you all back again and glad to be able to record once again now that summer is in the rearview mirror. It's early September as I record this and I had been wanting to record a couple of weeks back, but the heat in my house through the summer has been unbearable to the point that I contemplated having to record while having a fan running near me. The only problem with that, though, is that there was a constant humming going throughout the show, which, if I just reach over and turn this fan on, you'll hear what I mean. Hang on. And, yeah. See what I mean? That would have bugged the hell out of me, knowing that that would have wound up in the episode, so it was best to let the world cool down a bit before getting back to recording. So, let me just turn that back... Off again, and now that I can though, today we're going to be looking back at Series 4, Episode 11, Revenge is Sweet. Holding an 8.5 on IMDb, the episode was written by Tom Fontana and directed by Goran Gajic, back to direct his second episode of the show. Interesting thing about that IMDb rating as well, for a long time, for many years in fact, this episode held a 9.2 in the user ratings, which was the highest rated episode of the show on the site. I know that user ratings are completely subjective, but for a long time this was considered to be the best episode of the show among fans. The episode was originally broadcast on January 21st, 2001, a day on which Ridley Scott's Gladiator won Best Dramatic Movie and Best Original Score at the Golden Globe Awards, while Pope John Paul II elevated archbishops from New York and Washington as well as 35 other church leaders to the College of Cardinals. In the music charts, Destiny's Child continued to reign supreme at the top of the US Billboard Hot 100 as Independent Woman Part 1 celebrated its third week at number one, while in the UK, Jennifer Lopez scored her first number one single with Love Don't Cost a Thing, with sales exceeding 67,000 copies, which is an alarming number. The Beatles' compilation album, One, continued to dominate the U.S. album chart, having sold over 4 million copies in the U.S. alone at the time of broadcast, with the U.K. album chart being topped by the greatest hits of Texas.
0: Most prisons manufacture things. License plates, clothes, computer chips. In ours, we do one thing better than anybody. Revenge. Yeah, we turn out revenge with greater precision than a Ford assembly line. We're world-renowned and i'm happy to say for
3: us revenge is a growth industry kick off with act one in which augustus tells us about the manufacturing that goes on at various prisons whether that be clothing or license plates or even computer microchips but in oz the thing that they manufacture best better than anyone in fact is revenge as he fires up a pair of conveyor belt production lines coming in from each side and carrying a number of dead bodies Augustus tells us that they churn out revenge with a greater precision than that of a Ford assembly line. They're even world-renowned for it, and that revenge is a growth industry, as we cut to M-City, where Burr is still locked away in the MC cage. As with many instances on the show, it's not clear exactly how much time has passed between this point and where we finished off in the last episode, or if the duration of an inmate's stay in the cage is based on the severity of the offence. With Keller, of course, going into the cage first, soon after it was introduced last episode, but being out again fairly quickly, as his offence was just being a bit of a ass. while obviously Burr has been set up for murder, so it makes sense that his stay appears to have lasted a little longer. A number of dissolve shots show Burr just pacing around the small space in which he's enclosed, as the refugees approach him for a look almost like he's some kind of zoo animal. Burr asks them what the fuck they're looking at, but Murphy comes over to take Bear for a meeting with Leo. As I mentioned last episode, Gon Jin is played by Jin S. Kim, while the elder member of the group, Ping Hao, is played by Stephen S. Chen. Born in Seoul, South Korea, and growing up in Tacoma, Washington, Jin S. Kim graduated from the University of Washington with a BA in Business Administration, before deciding to pursue a career in acting, moving to New York and studying under James Price and Maggie Flanagan. Earning his first acting roles in 1995 on the theatre circuit as part of the Labyrinth Theatre Company, Jin became the first official president of the company, and also acted as a producer on productions of Where's My Money, Culture Bandit and Dewasa, and Our Lady on 121st Street. In addition to his theatre work, 1995 also saw Jin make his screen debut, appearing in a minor role in the film Grave's End. In 1997 Jin appeared in Hurricane Streets, which also featured an appearance by Oz alumni Edie Falco, while in 2000 he appeared in the short film Still, before appearing here on Oz. Information on Stephen S. Chen is a little harder to come by, but his acting debut is listed as being for the 1994 film Guarding Tess, in which Stephen played the minor role of Jimmy, and which also featured Oz alumni Austin Pendleton. So Burr is taken for a meeting with Leo and McManus, the meeting taking place in McManus' office for a change, where Leo tells him that it's believed that Burr arranged for Bian to be killed. Burr asks what that belief is based on exactly, McManus mentioning about Bian coming to speak with him previously after Morales gave Bian second-hand information about Burr having made a threat. Burr asks McManus if he looks stupid to him, mentioning McManus' warning about holding Burr responsible should anything happen to any of the refugees, and whether it makes sense that he'd go and grease the guy the following day. McManus infers that perhaps Burr is using a little reverse psychology, saying that maybe Burr killed Bian, assuming that McManus would think that he's too smart for that which is where Burr makes the accusation that he was set up by someone else. As with various instances in the past, such as Schillinger having killed Vogel in the gym to name but one, Leo tells McManus that they have no evidence, McManus mentioning that they only have the word of a dead man, as we then see Burr return to M-City with Augustus and Poet as Morales and Chucky watch on from where they're playing cards. As he passes them by, Burr thanks Morales and Chucky for arranging his stay in the cage, mentioning that he's not going to forget it. Chucky tells Morales so much for plan A, as Morales tells him, well, that's why they call it plan A, Chucky, because there's still plan B, C, D, and so on all the way to plan Z if they so need to. Chucky says they haven't got the time to go through the whole alphabet, feeling as though Bear is going to make a move on them fairly soon, but Morales seems more calm about the situation, taking a look across to Bear as the scene closes. The show can sometimes be a bit guilty of backing itself into a corner with regards to its own logic. Sure, Morales killing Bian in the way that he did was a memorable and especially gruesome moment in the show's history, but it serves little purpose if its outcome, in this case the framing of Burr for the murder, is undone in the very next episode, occurring once again through a lack of evidence for Leo or McManus to pursue any sort of outcome. In a way, it puts Burr on notice with regards to not getting involved in the affairs of Morales and Chucky, but they'd kind of already had that with him not accepting their deal last episode, and as a result the murder of Bian served very little purpose other than to provide a memorable kill. Cut to solitary, where Leo is heading down the hallway along with Officer Smith to meet with Miguel. Passing Supreme, who's complaining that his shower doesn't work, we also see that William Giles is still around, as Omar says that he has some primo information, and that Leo needs to hear him out because he's got serious 411, a phrase which I've never really understood, Listeners in North America are probably quite familiar with it, but for those of us outside of that continent, since around the 1930s you would dial 411 for directory assistance, although it's commonly known as calling information, and as a result has become a slang term for that, whereby somebody would say, give me the 411 on that, or where can I get the 411 on whoever? Omar continues to call for Leo, but Leo is focused on meeting with Miguel, who tells Leo that he has a proposition for him. Checking that Smith has searched Miguel for weapons, Leo asks for he and Miguel to be left alone, but for Smith to stay close by just in case. Not that Leo couldn't take Miguel if he tried anything, we've seen Leo working out in previous episodes, we've seen that he is an absolute unit, and he'd also have a considerable height and weight advantage over Miguel should he try and attack him. Miguel says that he knows that he and Leo have a history of bad shit, and that he knows Leo plans on keeping him in solitary for the rest of his life as a result, but Miguel pleads with Leo saying that he can't do that otherwise he'll turn into a zombie, especially having had a taste of the outside world. Leo tells Miguel to get to the point, as Miguel asks to be transferred back to M-City, offering to be Leo's eyes and ears in the unit, saying that whatever Leo needs to know, he'll find out. Leo asks about Miguel's loyalty to El Norte, but Miguel says fuck them, as it was El Cid that tried to have him killed and put him in solitary, describing it as a shithole. Leo, on the other hand, says that Miguel is in there because he's the lowest form of animal life, which is a brutal, cutting remark, not even viewing Miguel as a human being. However, despite comparing Miguel to something so low, he reckons that Miguel could be the perfect snitch, and agrees to the proposal, as we cut to M-City and see Miguel return through its gate as McManus watches on from above. Taking a moment to compose himself, Miguel makes his way back into the unit ready to face the obvious comments and jokes he's about to be pelted with, including one from Ryan who gives him shit about failing to escape into Mexico rather than the other way around. Jazz manages to sneak in some racism with his comment as Miguel passes Morales, which is actually their first interaction, as obviously Miguel had escaped by the time Morales arrived. Later in the day and having settled back into the unit, Miguel with Morales in the computer room to clear the air.
0: You get a lava rest. I was wondering when you come to see me.
4: You know, a lot's happened since I escaped.
0: And Hernandez is dead. And that makes you feel how? Happy. He hate that fucking cocksucker. Honesty. See, I like honesty. I hear sometimes you're too honest.
2: Look, man, I don't give a fuck. you in charge now, that's all you, man. I just want back in. Tell me what I gotta do.
0: See that man over there, Bird Redding?
3: I actually feel quite bad for Miguel here. Judging by the clock in the computer room, it's only just gone nine in the morning on his first day back in M-City, and he's already been tasked with killing a man, a step up from merely taking the CO's eyes when previously under El Cid's leadership. It really says something about his situation when it looks as though he'd have been better off staying in solitary. It's good to have him back mixing things up amongst the regular cast, though, as obviously there's been a number of new faces that have arrived between the periods of him being in solitary and the time in which he was on the outside. We get an Augustus monologue quoting the Lord, or more specifically Romans 12, 19, and how vengeance is his, and how the concept of revenge is God Almighty's exclusive property. As well as asking if God can only do good, then doesn't that mean that vengeance is a good thing also? As we flash cut to a staff meeting in which Leo hands things over to Gloria to discuss how the Weigert Corporation, who haven't been mentioned in quite some time but who are apparently still running the medical side of things at Oz, have asked the prison to participate in the testing of a new drug and oh fuck it's this storyline isn't it? Yep, the aging drug storyline, one of the most malign things to ever appear on the show and what appears to have been a jumping off point for a lot of fans. As Gloria begins to explain the concept behind the experiment, McManus tells her that he's against using prisoners as guinea pigs. Interesting to see that he seems to be against the idea entirely, taking inmates from other units into account rather than just those he is directly responsible for. Gloria mentions that participation will be voluntary, as Claire chimes in asking why anyone would put themselves forward. Leo throws in his two cents about how Weigert have already contacted Devlin about proceeding, with Devlin having agreed to reduce sentences to any inmates that participate. Officer Smith, making his staff meeting debut, asks what does this new drug actually do, asking whether or not it cures cancer. But Gloria takes back over explaining that it's been designed to reduce overcrowding in prisons whereby, get this, instead of serving the time that the inmate has been sentenced to, they will take a pill and age that same number of years. Age? What do you mean, like grow old? An excellent question, McManus, and yes, that is indeed the purpose of carrying out these tests. Smith asks if this is actually real, as Gloria mentions that widespread use is probably still a decade or so away, but the data collected in these findings will determine what further research will be based on until the drug is approved by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. Hammering home the absurdity of this just that little bit more, Claire asks if a 20-year-old inmate is supposed to save 30 years, then is this drug going to physically transform his body to that of a 50-year-old? Gloria confirming that that is indeed the case, and at the end of it all, the inmate goes free. Mamana slams his pencil down, which I can understand as even writing all this down in my notes seems utterly ridiculous, as we see the inmates gathered in the cafeteria where Gloria is explaining the concepts of the experiment to them from the podium.
1: There are, there are of course, dangers. Several of the lab animals developed heart problems, tumours, two died. And we're not completely sure how the drug interacts with humans, at what rate you would age or if you would age more years than you're supposed to. The risk is great. The sacrifice is great. That's why the reward is great too.
3: This storyline is fucking stupid. One of the things that I love about the show, especially over the last couple of series, is how it rarely strays away from reality and things that could happen. Rebido receiving messages from God is perhaps the closest we've come so far to crossing the boundary into dealing with the supernatural, but even then you could have still had a logical explanation as to why Rebido receives those bits of information. He's been in Oz for well over 30 years at this point. You don't spend that amount of time somewhere without learning a few tricks. At the start of Series 4A, we had a dream sequence in which Cyril was talking to Hamid Khan after injuring him in the finals of the boxing tournament, as well as seeing a dead Preston Nathan, but again, that's a dream sequence. You can do things outside of the box with that. Every other major instance on the show, whether that's the riot, or the boxing tournament, or even the racial tension and M-City becoming the quote-unquote black unit, they are things that could conceivably happen. Even Tehran shooting up the place, despite a number of logic flaws that we discussed at the time in order to get there, is something that could happen. However, a drug that physically changes a person, in which the drug would have to manipulate and change every single cell in a person's body, every aspect that makes them a living, breathing human being, that's some serious suspension of belief. It's estimated that there are around 37.2 trillion cells in the human body. That's an awful lot of manipulating for an experimental drug to undertake, and even writing that out in my notes sounds so fucking stupid. If this were an episode of Black Mirror, which if you've never watched that before, do seek it out, it's a fantastic sci-fi anthology series, I could maybe get on board with it because that's science fiction, but it just doesn't work for us gritty prison drama and science fiction just simply do not go together. Anyway, we cut to MC, where we see the others, who Augustus is still affiliated with despite his friendship with Burr, discussing whether they're going to volunteer for the experiment or not as they play a few hands of cards. Beecher seems apprehensive, saying that his daughter needs him full-time and how things will be for her if he comes out looking older than his own grandfather, while Augustus is exempt from applying due to being on a life sentence, and how the only pill they can give him is cyanide. While cyanide, to the best that my research can find, has never been offered in pill form as part of capital punishment, it was last used in Arizona when Walter Bernard Legrand was executed via the gas chamber on March 3rd, 1999. In 2021, Arizona one of only two states that still offer the gas chamber as a method of execution, came under fire after the Guardian reported that the state had refurbished and tested one of its chambers as well as having purchased the chemicals potassium cyanide, sodium hydroxide, and sulfuric acid, which when combined are used to make hydrogen cyanide, also known as Zyklon B, which was used by the Nazis at numerous concentration camps during World War II. Usmalis mentions that with him and Norma being engaged to be married, it would be nice to have something of a normal life together, but also admits that he's afraid of dying. Jazz passes by mentioning to returning inmate Nuggets, aka Fred Wick, who was last credited back in Series 2, that staying in Oz means you've got no guarantee of living, so for that reason, Jazz is in. Nuggets saying that he'd take a tumour than staying in Oz any day, which he says to the Muslims as they also pass by, with Saeed calling the programme immoral and unnatural so I think it's safe to say that he's not volunteering, although I'd presume he was exempt due to still being on some sort of medication for his heart attack from Series 1. But then again, that hasn't been mentioned for some time, so perhaps it's just been forgotten about. Arif agrees, but also mentions about his father having suffered a stroke recently, and that he'd like to be with him before he dies. So there continues to be a difference of opinion on matters among the Muslims, specifically Saeed and Arif. Over in the kitchen pantry, Ryan is completing the all-important paperwork, checking that they have the right amount of cans of peaches, quick-mix mashed spuds, that sort of thing, when Claire comes in and closes the gate behind her, approaching Ryan from behind and pinching his ass. Shocked at having just been sexually assaulted, Ryan fights off a kiss from Claire, telling her not here, not now, despite Claire's admission of finding his kitchen white so sexy. Claire sarcastically asks if Ryan has a headache, but Ryan says they can't be doing this sneaking around anymore, calling the whole situation crazy. A wild-eyed Claire reminds Ryan that she told him that it's up to her when things stop between them. Ryan threatens to go to Leo and spill the beans, something which he may have made an allowance for in his paperwork, but Claire is unfazed and says that she'd just find someone else to fuck instead, someone as handsome as Ryan. Who could that possibly be? Why Ryan's brother Cyril, of course! who right on time passes by in the background. Ryan relents to Claire's games, Claire telling him that today he's going to play the Dutch boy that stuck his finger in the dike, leading him away to carry out this act in an undisclosed location. Does dyke have the same connotation in the States as it does elsewhere? Because I've always understood it to be a derogatory term for a lesbian, so is Claire saying that she's a lesbian, or is she literally calling herself a massive sheet of rock? Of course, it could also be a reference to Mary Maps Dodge's story Hans Brinker or the Silver Skates, where the short story of The Boy and the Dyke appears within the main novel's 18th chapter, a story in which a young boy saves the country of the Netherlands by plugging a hole in the dike with his finger to save the country from flooding. Ryan in this case would be the young boy who plugs Claire's hole with his finger, saving the Netherlands, presumably being portrayed by Cyril in this situation, from the oncoming flood that is Claire's relentless sexual appetite. With that image now firmly planted in your brain, we cut to the phones where Cyril is finishing off a phone call with Aunt Brenda. Nuggets starts banging on the window telling Cyril to hurry up with the phone, but Cyril continues with his conversation, which causes Nuggets to enter and press down the receiver on the phone, cutting off Cyril's call with Aunt Brenda. There's more than one phone in the room here, why couldn't Nuggets have just used one of the others? Having had his call cut short, Cyril slams the phone down on Nuggets' finger, which is still on the receiver a fight breaking out between the two of them as other inmates cheer on from the outside. Murphy and a number of other COs run in to break up the scrap, as we see Cyril in another one of his rages being brought into the hospital on a stretcher, having been placed in restraints, as Gloria attempts to administer a shot to sedate him. Despite having his hands restrained, Cyril is still able to manoeuvre his hands somewhat upwards and grabs Gloria by the throat, as an officer runs in to whack Cyril on the head with his nightstick to get Cyril to release his grip. The whack to the head does the trick as Cyril is knocked unconscious, as we cut to Gloria meeting with McManus in his office to discuss what's to be done with Cyril.
0: Cyril's behaviour continues to be erratic. I think that we should seriously consider transferring him to the Conley Institute.
1: Separating him from his brother is only going to make him worse.
0: Yeah, but then he's not going to be our problem. How about that rain check? Huh? Dinner. What are you doing tonight?
1: I'm working late. Dr. Prostopnik has a charity event.
3: Tomorrow
0: night?
1: Maybe. We'll
3: see. So that persistence paying off as he seems to be slowly grinding Gloria down for the elusive date he's been after. And I liked Gloria keeping Dr. Prostopnik's name in the show too by saying that he's away doing a charity event. An explanation as to why someone isn't around rather than them simply disappearing. I like it. McManus reckoning that shipping Cyril off to the Conley Institute means that Cyril is no longer their problem was a bit of a dick move, though, completely at odds with McManus' previous ideals of making the inmates' lives better through her rehabilitation. It's also incredibly short-sighted, as removing Cyril will obviously have an effect on Ryan, who we see acting agitated outside on the balcony, so rather than solving one problem, it's only going to create another. Speaking of Ryan, over in Gloria's office he's talking with her about how time in Oz is fucked up, and how you start to think about the time you've wasted, and the time you have left to serve, the time you have left to live and having taken all of that into consideration, asks for he and Cyril to be included in the experiment the scene finishing on the unintentionally hilarious, Gloria make me old, once again just hammering home the absurdity of all of this Cut to the staff room where Gloria and a furious McManus enter McManus bellowing that Ryan and Cyril are not viable candidates because neither of them are eligible for parole. Gloria mentions about petitioning the commissioner to allow an exception, saying that if he's going to listen to anyone, it'll be her. As McManus asks why the fuck does Gloria want to help the O'Reillys? He's full of the logical questions this episode. Gloria telling him that it's for humanitarian reasons. McManus saying that humanitarian and Ryan O'Reilly don't belong in the same sentence. Interesting how the focus of the argument has shifted to it being about Ryan in particular. While all of this is going on, Murphy is just sat at one of the tables keeping quiet until McManus asks him to talk to Gloria. Murphy only manages to get her name out before being interrupted, as Gloria asks why McManus isn't willing to give Ryan a chance, pointing out that even she is willing to do so. McManus references having given Ryan a number of chances, but Gloria accuses him of being blind to what's going on as McManus threatens to have the experiment shut down if she includes Ryan in the program, saying that he'll do everything in his power before storming out of the room. As I say, it's interesting how the arguments seem to shift almost seamlessly from being about the inclusion of the O'Reilly brothers to specifically being about Ryan's involvement as a point of contention for McManus. He doesn't understand why Gloria is willing to help either of them, which I can understand to a degree, but as I mentioned previously, it is at odds with everything that manus has been about since the start of the show, that being rehabilitation, and the inmates re-entering society as better people. As he mentions, both of the O'Reillys are in for life, so they won't necessarily have that opportunity, but that doesn't mean you just abandon your principles and leave them to waste away in Oz. So, roll call of the inmates that have been selected for the experiment, ten of them in total. Up front we have Beecher, Jazz, and Timmy Kirk, his first credited appearance in Series 4A, Episode 6, we also see that Cyril and Ryan are there too, while in the second row we have Robson, Kiki and Nuggets. There are two black inmates in the second row as well, but we don't get a clear shot of them, so it's hard to say exactly who they are. Gloria explains that five of them will be given the drug, while the other five will be given a harmless placebo, which when used in tablet form like how they are here are usually made up of either starch or sugar. The men are to be given a weekly dose of the drug as well as undergoing a full examination to monitor their health and any progress of ageing. She asks if any of them have any questions, and then gives Ryan his dose, which he chugs down with some water. Cyril is up next but seems reluctant, saying that he doesn't like the medicine, but after some encouragement takes the pills, leading to McManus leaving the room as we close out Act 1. Five of you will be
1: given the drug five of you will get a harmless placebo. Once a week, you receive another dosage and another complete physical examination in order to monitor your health and the progress of your ageing. Are there any questions?
3: Let's go. Act two gets underway with Augustus narrating about his Uncle Bilbo telling him that revenge is a dish best served cold. I'm beginning to think that Uncle Bilbo is more of an Uncle Bullshit as obviously that phrase was around long before he uttered it to Augustus, the phrase originating in Eugene Sue's novel Memoirs of Matilda, first published in 1843. Augustus breaks down the expression to mean that if the person plotting the revenge goes into it all hot and lathered, they're likely to go home hungry. But should a person approach their revenge with a cooler demeanour, then maybe they'll have themselves a feast, as he wishes us bon appetit, as we see more bodies make their way across the conveyor belt. Cut to the gym where Augustus himself is working his arms doing some bicep curls. It seemed a little odd coming out of Augustus' narration right into him in the scene, but I'm sure it's probably happened on the show before. He continues to work out as, holy shit, it's Jackson Vahue, making his return to the show for the first time since Series 2, Episode 1. So in terms of broadcast time, this is the first time that we've seen him on the show for the better part of two and a half years. And in terms of the podcast, it's been over three years since we last saw him. Covid hadn't even happened yet. That's how long it's been since we last saw him. So what has Rick Fox been up to in those intervening two and a half years? We mentioned previously that he had joined the LA Lakers from the Boston Celtics in 1997, and since then he had mainly been the backup to small forward Glenn Rice during the 1998-99 season. Away from the court, Rick had also earned himself two further acting credits, appearing in the movie Resurrection, as well as the TV movie The Collectors, while on the court the 1999-2000 season proved to be a successful year for Rick. Playing in all 22 games of the end-of-season playoffs, the Lakers would advance to the NBA Finals against the Indiana Pacers. Averaging 6.7 points across the Finals, including 11 points in Game 1, Rick was instrumental in the Lakers' victory in Game 6, nailing a critical three-pointer in the fourth quarter, as Rick claimed his first NBA championship with the Lakers, their 12th NBA championship overall, and first since 1988. We'll get to where Vahieu has been in a moment, but to give you an idea of the quick turnaround between Series 4A and 4B, the 2000-2001 NBA season for the Lakers got underway on Tuesday, October 31st, 2000 with an away trip to the Trailblazers in Portland, Oregon. While we'll see him throughout the remainder of this series, Rick played 77 out of 82 games that season, so will have been unavailable from the end of October so all of his scenes will have been filmed between August, when the show returned quickly to production after Series 4A, and the end of October before the NBA season started, possibly even earlier than that. So the show was actually lucky to get him back in a lot of ways. Vahieu asks how Augustus is doing, but Augustus senses that Vahieu is up to something and tells him that whatever it is, the answer is no. Vahieu, sinking some baskets showing that he still has the skills, tells Augustus not to be like that and mentions their history, as we see flashbacks to when Vahue first arrived at Oz and how Augustus thought of him as a hero, Augustus saying that he was still naive then, thinking that Vahue was as good a person as he was a basketball player. Vahue mentions that he stepped up during the riots to try and save Eugene Dobbin's life, and that all he got was an ass whooping which we see a short flashback of, as well as being handed a transfer. As Augustus tries to leave, Veyhue tells him that ever since he's been back in Oz, he's been invisible, which would certainly explain his absence if he means it literally. But that is where the problem lies. Where the fuck has Vehu been? He mentions a transfer, but also having arrived back in Oz, which would imply that at some point in time he's been in a different prison entirely. If that isn't the case, however, then where the fuck has he been? Is he meant to have been in Genpop this whole time? Two and a half years is a long time to supposedly hide in the background, although, having said that, that appears to be exactly what Jiggy Walker has been doing since we last saw him. It turns out that Vahue is up for parole soon, which is accurate. He received a 12-year sentence, and was up for parole in five. Of course, we're in series 4B, which puts us somewhere in the middle of the fourth year. He tells Augustus that while he's in Oz rotting, Vahue will be back out on the court, asking Augustus, why don't you live with that little man? and bounces the ball in Augustus' direction, Augustus narrowly avoiding contact with it as the scene closes. Over in the computer room, Ribedo makes his way in to find Augustus looking over some articles online as he tries to find the name of the woman that Vahue assaulted. He'll be lucky to find them. 2001 was still very much a period of print media, and I doubt that many news outlets will have been making them available digitally online. Ribedo asks why Augustus is looking for that information as Augustus explains that Vahieu is going to try and sweet-talk the parole board into setting him free, and that he just wants to make sure that the woman in question gets a chance to tell the board otherwise. In the case of parole board hearings, victims are allowed to attend to answer questions from the board, but it is often their responsibility to seek out when a hearing is set to take place. As it would be in the interest of the defendant's lawyer as well as that of the prison to have the parole board rule in favour of allowing an inmate to be released and thus free up space in an already overcrowded prison population. Obviously, that's not to say that parole is always granted without victim testimony, but by putting the onus on the victim to find out when a hearing is taken place in order to testify, their absence would increase the likelihood of an inmate being released early. Rebido asks if Augustus really still hates Vehu that much, but Augustus insists that this isn't about hate, but rather about justice, and that Veihu should serve his full 12-year sentence. Rebido tries to be the voice of reason, saying that if Vehu gets out now, he has a chance of salvaging his basketball career, whereas if he serves the full sentence, he'll be too old, and that the NBA will have passed him by. That's exactly what Augustus wants, though, Rebido repeating his thoughts about Augustus' hatred for Vehu as he walks off. After a bit more sleuthing, Augustus finds the name of the woman in question, a Beverly Reed, who he calls to inform about Vahue's upcoming hearing. And I like the little bit of continuity here with a repairman fixing the phone that obviously got broken in the scuffle between Cyril and Nuggets earlier. As predicted, Miss Reed hasn't been informed of the upcoming hearing, and we see Vahue making his way to speak with the parole board, but as he gets to the door, Miss Reed exits the room, the pair of them exchanging a long stare. The actress appearing as Beverly Reed went uncredited, so I was unable to find a name for her, so I'm not certain if this is the same woman that will have appeared in Vahue's crime flashback originally. Vehu's demeanour has completely changed having run into Miss Reed, as he looks into the room where the parole board are waiting for him, and I think it's safe to say that Vehu's chances of release have drastically decreased as they do not look impressed at what they've been told. Later in the day, we see Vehu in the cafeteria sat at the table brandishing a plastic knife, as Augustus passes by and has the audacity to ask how the hearing went, which sends Vehu into a rage as he tosses his lunch tray across the room, which causes a CO who doesn't see it coming to flinch in quite an amusing way. Augustus looks pleased at what Vehu's outburst obviously means, as Vehu continues to lash out at anyone and everyone, punching one CO in the face, before eventually being restrained by three COs who cart him off to the hall. Despite looking pleased with himself a moment ago, Augustus now seems to be having second thoughts, as obviously this now means that he has a target on his back, and I don't doubt that there will be several inmates who would be willing to do the bidding of the big celebrity sports star if asked. The scene closes with hue being thrown into the hole, hitting the floor and sliding across much like how Robson did previously, and throwing his piss bucket around as the scene fades to black. Overall, a decent few minutes here with a reintroduction of Veyhu, even if you do have to look past that he's apparently just been keeping to himself for the last couple of years. They could have written him out of the show at some point, maybe using his celebrity status to get transferred to Lardner or somewhere else entirely, but bringing him back does open up a few storyline possibilities. You've got to imagine as well that there was something to having an NBA champion appear on your show, or reappear in this case, will have hopefully led to a minor ratings boost. He might not be one of the lead characters, but shows have guest stars for a reason. There are people out there that will watch something purely because a particular celebrity is appearing on it. Just look at the myriad of shows out there that are celebrity whatever. And it's not like that's something new to us either. The show has had a plethora of guest stars appear over the years, whether that's sports athletes like Rick Fox, or hip-hop artists such as LL Cool J and Lord Jamar, or the vast array of Broadway actors that we've seen on the show so far, and will continue to do so as we go forward. We come back up on Solitary where Smith is making his rounds. Supreme is still complaining about his busted shower, as Omar asks for five minutes with Leo because he has something important to tell him, a continuation of what he mentioned earlier. Smith, however, enters the cell of William Giles, who sadly we don't seem to have seen the back of yet, although saying that, this is the first time that we've seen him since the Jim stabbing of Miguel and Bevel Acqua, so it has been a little while. That's the reason why Smith is there to see him, telling Giles that today is moving day, while also menacingly brandishing some metal chains, as we then cut to Giles' meeting with Sister P, who mentions about the stabbing having taken place last year, so keeping in with the passage of time there and asks if Giles remembers killing Bevelacqua. Giles, as only he can, tells Pete that Aqua was a bad man, and also mentions that he was bald. Not sure what that had to do with anything. Pete, however, has the unfortunate task of informing Giles that the court has found him guilty of first-degree murder, and that the judge has sentenced Giles to death. Of course, this isn't the first time that this has happened on the show, it's the exact same thing that happened to Donald Groves, as well as Jefferson Keane and Nat Ginsburg. Richie Hamlin is the anomaly in that, in that he was sent to death row after being wrongfully convicted of murdering Alexander Vogel, although of course he returned to M-City later on after his conviction was overturned on a technicality. Despite the precedent having been set, theoretically Johnny Basil should be here too after confessing to murdering Bruno Gergen by pushing him down the elevator shaft, but we'll talk more about that a little later. Giles goes through a gamut of emotions, but settles on looking terrified as Pete explains about how he's to be transferred to Death Row, where Giles will stay until the day of his execution, Pete struggling to hold it together as she finds the words. As Pete mentions execution, Giles springs from his chair and shouts, SAVE! repeatedly, Pete telling him that she's sorry, as Smith escorts Giles out of her office and down the corridor as Giles continues crying out to be saved. I've mentioned this before, but I really feel for Pete in these situations, despite having done this a number of times since the reintroduction of the death penalty, and possibly a number of times before it was originally abolished, it never gets any easier to have to tell someone that they're going to be put to death, especially when we know that she is so opposed to its practice, and this one is made all the more difficult with her having developed this relationship with William Giles over the last couple of years, She's already gone back on leaving the church, but it makes you wonder how much longer she can keep doing this as part of her job as a psychiatrist, as she seems to be finding it more and more difficult each time. Cut to Death Row, where we see Lepresti lock Giles away in his new cell. Giles asks for Peter, Peter Marie, but Lepresti tells him that she isn't going to save him now, and that from here on out, Lepresti is his lifeline, leaving Giles to get acquainted with Moses who more than anything just seems happy that there's another person down on death row, having been there on his own for the last six months or so. He introduces himself to Giles, but Giles can only muster the words "tooty fruity" and a couple of nonsensical noises. Moses' eagerness to make a new friend quickly disappears as he realises his last days on Earth are going to be spent with what he calls a lunatic. Of course, he wouldn't have had to had he not bought himself another year on death row after appealing his case to the state court. Since then, we've had a passage of time of six months, or a little over six months now, so Moses has less than that to serve should his death sentence not get overturned. A quick scene this one, essentially tying up some loose ends, sealing Giles' fate for the gym stabbing, and also reminding us that Moses is still around. We don't get a shot of it here, but Giles has been placed in the cell that Mark Miles had, the one that Moses made a big hole in when he reached through and killed Mark, so I'm assuming that that hole in the wall has been sealed now. Otherwise, Giles could essentially just climb through the hole and he's got himself, like, double the space of a normal cell. In the gym, Arif is shouting encouragement to the other Muslims as they do press-ups, telling them, You got more than that! Come on! Push it! As Leroy sneaks on to the end of the line, completing what can be best described as a Muslim disguise, and attempts to join in the workout. Saeed, who by the way looks absolutely jacked at this point in the show, well done, and Walker, soon notices Leroy and pulls him up and then throws him against the chain-link fence, telling Leroy that he doesn't belong there, and that he's told him a hundred times that Leroy cannot be a Muslim. He also snatches the kufi from Leroy's head, but as Leroy tries to retrieve it, Said gives him a hard right hook, letting out an animalistic roar as well as sporting some cocaine eyes, as he's held back from continuing the beating by the other Muslims. They all eventually leave as we get the crime flashback for Leroy Tid, in which we see him playing the role of getaway driver for a robbery, his accomplice having held up a petrol station which also seems to have resulted in a man's death. The two of them try to escape, but no sooner have they got off the forecourt, they plough into the side of a police car. The accomplice fires off a couple of shots at an officer before trying to make a run for it, but he gets shot in the back as Leroy holds his hands out of the car window in surrender, Augustus informing us that Leroy has been convicted of armed robbery and reckless endangerment, for which he has received a 20-year sentence, up for parole in 12. I mentioned it back when he first appeared, but Leroy here is played by Jacques C. Smith in what was only his second acting role at this point, his acting debut coming a few months prior to appearing on Oz when he appeared as Lewis Johnson in the 10th season of Law and Order. In something of a weird transition, we remain in the gym on what I'm assuming is either later that same day as everyone seems to be wearing the same clothes, or a completely different day where everyone is wearing the same clothes in something of a coincidence. Jazz and Robson have joined everyone in the gym this time, as they get a signal from Leroy before making their way over to Arif, who's playing basketball with the other Muslims. The ball makes its way over to Robson, who tells Arif to tell Saeed that he doesn't like being sent to the hole, as Arif just asks for the ball back. Robson obliges, throwing a chest pass right into Arif's face, which causes a big brawl between Robson and Jazz and the Muslims. As Robson puts the boots into Arif, who's crumpled up on the floor having taken a basketball in the face, Leroy runs in to make the save, first by attacking Jazz before getting a shot in on Robson, as he tells Arif alhamdulillah, an Arabic phrase meaning praise be to God, as he's then restrained by COs, and we see Leroy being placed in the hole, once again raising my more than one hole theory as we still haven't seen Vehu being released from his stint in there yet. After a moment, Leroy sports a bit of a smirk, so along with that little nod he gave to Robson a second ago, this was obviously planned all along to gain Arif's trust rather than that of Saeed, Arif having appeared more open to Leroy's supposed conversion the last few times we've seen him. Having had his face patched up, Arif returns to M-City and into his pod where Saeed is praying. Saeed rises to his feet, asking Arif what happened to his face, as Arif tells him that once he explains, whatever anger Saeed has for Leroy will disappear, as we then see Leroy return to M-City where the Muslims are waiting for him. But more importantly, he is met by Saeed, who Leroy thanks for having arranged for him to be released and brought back to M-City, Leroy of course having spent some time in Unit B following the death of Adabizi. Saeed admits that he was wrong about Leroy, and that he was blaming him for the sins of others, and for that he is truly sorry as he then offers Leroy the Kufi that he snatched from him earlier. Leroy seems confused at first, but does take the Kufi from Saeed and places it on his head, signifying his entry into the group, as Saeed tells him as Alaikum, as Leroy shakes the hands of the other Muslims, and we hear an Arabic chant to close the scene. While all of this is going on, it's important to remember that there were others involved in this little charade, that being Jazz and Robson who we see sorting packages in the mailroom, with Jazz sounding not too thrilled about looking like a sap while others win. Or words to that effect. Robson tells him not to worry, and that once Said is dead, they'll take Leroy out as well, while also complaining that Leroy doesn't know how to pull a punch. A callback perhaps to a similar scheme that Mark Mack and Keller were part of to gain Beecher's trust back in Series 2, the one where Keller smacked Mack in the face with his cast, in which he broke Mac's nose in the process. Schellinger approaches them having heard about the scrap in the gym and makes it clear that he told them to leave Saeed alone, asking them if they're looking to start a war. Robson tells Shellinger that Leroy is going to do all the dirty work, and that no one will know they were involved, which isn't strictly true and shows Robson to be a bit of an idiot, because if Saeed winds up dead then he and Jazz will be right at the top of the list of suspects due to this recent fight with the Muslims. Schellinger isn't convinced either, as he says that people in Oz tend to have a way of finding out the truth, In an act of defiance to his leader, Robson tells Schillinger to go thump his Bible. So there seems to be some dissension developing in the Aryans, as obviously Schillinger is trying to keep on the straight and narrow due to his newfound friendship with Cloutier, as well as wanting to be around when his grandchild arrives, whereas Robson seemingly doesn't have the same kind of things to look forward to or any reason to aspire to be a better prisoner, so perhaps he's seeing this as an opportunity to seize control of the Brotherhood for himself and oust Schillinger as the leader. Cut to the library where Jazz smacks some guy on the back of the head which makes a great sound as Robson talks to Cloutier about getting into Schillinger's head. Beat it.
2: Scram. We're buddies with Vern Schillinger. You didn't fucking with his head. Oi. We agreed i do the talking. Let me do the fucking talking and get to the point. First you convince him to join that interaction program with Beecher. Gentlemen. I assure you, I didn't convince him to do anything, except look in his heart, open his heart to the Lord. His heart was being just fine without you. Hoyt, go read a book. Schilling runs the Brotherhood. I understand. You look to him for leadership. No, we look to him for balls, not heart. Balls. When something needs to get done, it needs to get done without no. What you call it? uh, Moral Dilemma? There are many ways to get things done. Not here, Rev. You back off on Vern. wait, he'll see to it that you and Jesus have a face-to-face soon. In Heaven. Let's go.
3: I love the contrast going on between Robson and Jazz here. You've got Jazz who is covered in tattoos, most of which are very well drawn and shaded and what have you, While in contrast, Robson has one solitary SS tattoo on his arm, which looks like it's been drawn by a four-year-old. Speaking of the SS and Nazi imagery, Jazz's hat here, the one for West Coast choppers, big in the biking scene, so not a surprise to see Jazz wearing something like this, but that logo, big old iron cross on that motherfucker right there. Much like the swash sticker, the iron cross was a symbol prior to its use by the Nazis, dating back to 1813 when it was used as a military medal by the Kingdom of Prussia during the Napoleonic Wars, but in more recent times it definitely has that Nazi stink lingering around it. This is also prior to a 2003 ban on the brand in Las Vegas, and to Jesse James, the company's founder, claiming in 2004 that the logo was based on the Maltese cross, a claim he made after the brand was banned by the Simi Valley School District in California following racially motivated violence between black and white students. I mean, you can try and claim that all you want, buddy, who, by the way, just Google Jesse James Nazi pics and see what happens, but I am not buying that for a second. We also see that Jazz and Robson are a really bad partnership. They've gone into this meeting supposedly as a united front, Aryans and bikers together, But they can't even agree on who's going to be doing the talking. They're fucking useless, the pair of them. Even when Robson eventually takes control and speaks with Cloutier, he doesn't seem sure of how to actually word things, and even at the end there he adds something unnecessary to try and emphasise his point. If things were different, and this was Schillinger going into this conversation, he would know exactly what he wanted to say and how he was going to say it before getting there, whereas Robson is very much winging this. He just isn't cut out to be a leader, he's a follower and nothing more, and clearly neither is Jazz, who just buggers off when told to do so. Over in the cafeteria, Cloutier informs Schillinger about Robson and Jazz coming to talk with him, or at least attempting to talk with him. Schillinger asks Cloutier if they threatened him, which Cloutier says they did, as Schillinger says that he'll talk to them. Cloutier, however, tells him not to and that he isn't afraid of them. He's telling Schillinger out of courtesy more than anything but says they would do anything to get Schillinger back, so maybe I've misread Robson's leadership aspirations. Schillinger admits that despite having read the scriptures and through talking with Cloutier, he isn't sure where he fits into all of this, saying that he doesn't want to become some big holy roller, but at the same time he does want some joy in his life, and that if Jazz and Robson can't appreciate that, then to hell with them, as we get a shot of Robson and Jazz watching on from a distance. Cloutier says to hell with them indeed, we then cut to Schilling a meeting with Carrie.
4: Here's the name and number of a woman I want you to call if you need anything before the baby comes, or if you just want to talk things through.
0: The New Church of Christ. But I heard of them. I Ain't mean, that the group was minister got caught stealing hundreds and thousands of dollars?
4: The Reverend Cloutier, yes. He's here in Oz. And he's a good man, Carrie. I, I told him all about you, you know, how you got nobody. Except for me and Hank. Hank? Where the fuck
0: is Hank? Not even a postcard.
4: You got to remember, the boy left town before he knew you were pregnant. If, if Hank was aware of what was going on, he'd be here. Yeah,
1: don't be so sure.
4: Reverend Cloutier says that this woman, this Sarah, she was all alone and pregnant. Before she found his congregation. When you get lonely, call her, okay? She understands.
0: Mr. Schillinger, I didn't take you for the religious
4: type. I'm, I'm not. I, I mean, I've always been Christian. Just. I'm starting to see other parts of the picture now.
3: Good to beach nervously pacing in the room where his interaction with Schillinger is about to take place. Pete arrives asking if Beecher is feeling nervous. Presumably she saw him from outside the window a second ago, as Beecher talks about how they've gone over his feelings towards Schillinger, and that he knows exactly what he wants to say, and that he knows more or less what Schillinger is going to say to him, but he admits that he's feeling nauseous and that his palms are sweaty. But luckily his knees aren't weak, his arms aren't heavy, and there's no vomit on his sweater already. He is nervous, but on the surface he looks calm and ready. Pete tells Beecher, you better lose yourself in the music, the moment, you own it, you better... No, she doesn't really. She tells him that despite those feelings of nauseousness, that doesn't mean that meeting with Schillinger is the wrong thing to do. Beecher telling her that all he wants is for his daughter and his family to be safe, and that he'd like to wake up one morning not feeling afraid. The door flies open thanks to an officer and Schillinger enters. I thought that was really well done as it thrust Beecher into the situation, helped by the swooshing sound effect that accompanied it. I just
2: want my daughter to be safe. I want my family to be safe. <sighs> and I'd like to wake up one morning and not be afraid.
3: Come in, Bryn. I don't feel as though he would have backed out of the interaction. It's taken long enough to get to this stage for both men. But he doesn't get a moment to compose himself before Schillinger's arrival. He's just there all of a sudden. Really well done. Pete gets things underway in an orderly manner, telling everyone to take a seat, which both men do, a coffee table separating them and providing a clear divide in the room. Not that it did much last time we had an interaction, you'll remember that Gloria kind of used it to propel herself into attacking Ryan. Pete asks who wants to start things off, and in something of a surprise, Schillinger is the one who wants to begin, raising his hand and asking if he can read a verse from his Bible. Pete seems baffled by that initially, she clearly wasn't expecting that to happen today, but she says that it's okay by her if it's okay by Beecher, who allows Schillinger to proceed. Schillinger reads Isaiah 11, 6 through 11, 9, as we also see the crime flashback of Timmy Kirk to close out Act 2. With
4: your permission, I'd like to start with a reading from the Holy Scripture.
3: Uh, sure.
1: Tobias, do you mind? No, not at all.
4: The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall feed, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The sucking child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Prisoner number
0: 96K423, Timothy Kirk, convicted April 16th, 1996. Manslaughter, endangering the welfare of a child. Sentence, 12 years. Up for parole,
3: and seven. At this stage in time, it wasn't clear if the show would return for a fifth series or not, and with five episodes to go after this one, it seems as though the showrunners were planning to wrap up the beecher Schillinger story, which with that amount of time left would have been the right call to make. Their rivalry has been the centrepiece of the show since the very beginning when Schillinger tricked new arrival Beecher into trusting him. Since then, it has been all-out war between the two men, which has seen Beecher go through a rollercoaster of emotions along the way sending him somewhat psychotic for a period of time, yet also turning him into a lovesick puppy as he began a relationship with Keller. Along the way, there have been a multitude of deaths occur. initially starting with Beecher's wife, for which it was heavily implied that Schillinger was responsible, although it could have been a suicide, as well as Schillinger's youngest son arriving at Oz and diving due to a drug overdose. While outside of the prison, we've had the death of a young child, while Hank, who admittedly is a young man, has also been killed as well. This is where the show has once again kind of backed itself into a corner. Once you've introduced child murder into proceedings, a truly horrific moment in these two men's story, where do you go from there? Outside of killing Beach's baby or Carrie's baby when it arrives, which for me would have been a step too far even for a show as brutal as Oz, you've kind of exhausted all your options as to where the story can go. And ever since Gary's death, the show's kind of been walking away from itself almost as if that is as far as the envelope could have realistically been pushed. Had the show not returned for Series 5, which, spoiler alert, it will, five episodes following this one I feel as though would have been enough time to tie this story up, especially with how it relates to other characters involved with it, and what happens with them as we approach the end of Series 4B. Having said all of that, I thought that J.K. Simmons was great in this block of scenes that he had, once again commanding every second he was on screen and showing Schillinger to be lost and not really knowing how far to go with Cloutier, while also struggling to explain his religious outlook to Carrie, and even being the one to begin this recovery process with this Bible passage focused on children, which is something of an attempted atonement for him with Schillinger having been the one to have caused the deaths of the majority of his and Beecher's offspring. So Act 3 ushers in the crime flashback of Timmy Kirk, which plays out underneath Schillinger's child-focused Bible verse, and which sees Timmy placing a young baby in a rat-infested dumpster while the child's mother cries in a nearby car. He is convicted of manslaughter as well as endangering the welfare of a child, and sentenced to 12 years, up for parole in seven. I got to wondering how a manslaughter conviction has only landed Timmy with a 12-year sentence, as you would think that the death of a child would warrant a harsher punishment. But according to Cornell Law School, under US Code Title 18, Part 1, Chapter 51, Subsection eleven twelve, manslaughter is the unlawful killing of a human being without malice. It is of two kinds, voluntary, defined as upon a sudden quarrel or heat of passion, and involuntary, which is defined as in the commission of an unlawful act not amounting to a felony, or in the commission in an unlawful manner, without due caution and circumspection of a lawful act which might produce death. Those found guilty of voluntary manslaughter shall be fined under this title or in prison not more than 15 years or both, which would appear to be the one that Timmy has been convicted of, while those found guilty of involuntary manslaughter shall be fined under this title or in prison not more than 8 years or both. So yeah, I suppose it could be argued that Timmy didn't murder this baby himself, rather he put the child in a situation which then caused its death. Either way, personally, I think Timmy Kirk has gotten off quite lightly here. Augustus gives us a detail showing that Timmy has been in Oz since 1996, which would mean that he was there before the show started, making him an Oz original in some ways. Of course, he first appeared during Series 2 when he was a lackey for the Irish once M-City reopened, and he famously got a look at Shirley's pussy when she flashed him when he was working as a cleaner down on Death Row. Since then, he may have been in the background at some point during Series 3, But he certainly hasn't had a whole lot to contribute since then other than introducing Ryan to Patrick Keenan when he arrived at Oz, and also being the person to inform Schillinger about Beecher being the one to have located Hank. So, Timmy Kirk is played by Sean Duggan. Born April 2nd, 1974, in Norfolk, Virginia, Shane made his acting debut in 1998, appearing off-Broadway in R&J, where he played a number of roles throughout its run, as well as a production of Corpus Christi, before appearing here on Oz in his screen-acting debut. Since first appearing on Oz back in Series 2, Sean has earned credits on TV for the ill-fated The Beat, appearing in the show's fourth episode and one of the few that actually made it to broadcast, while in 2000 he had a minor role in The Company Man, and would appear along with Oz alumni Harold Perrineau, Todd Ettelson, Otto Sanchez, Peter Apel, Edie Falco and Brett Gillen in the movie Overnight Sensation, which brings us to this point in time. The amount of Oz-related folks in that movie got to thinking that the casting director on that, a gentleman by the name of Lee Jennick, must have worked on Oz at some point. And it turns out that he was, although his time on the show didn't begin until Series 5, where he worked in extras casting, so it could just be put down to coincidence. Or perhaps Lee was a fan of the show prior to casting that movie, and ended up joining the show later on. So over in the gym, we see Timmy approach Cludier, who's putting in a shift on the bench press. Timmy comments about how a healthy body can contribute to a healthy mind, and how the Catholic Church called the body the template of the Holy Spirit that's meant to be kept pure, asking Cloutier if he believes that. Rather than telling Timmy to just leave him alone because he's working out, Cloutier calls the body God's gift to man, and how we're obligated to take care of it, as Timmy then inquires about sex, asking if that's a gift from God too. Cloutier says, of course it is, when in reality it's not, it's just how science works as Timmy leans in asking if Cludier would like a blowjob. As Cludier sits up and Timmy drops to a squatted position, subtly done, may I add, Cludier asks what makes Timmy think that he would want a blowjob, Timmy reckoning that everyone wants a blowjob, which is a fair point. Squirt quote David Lee Roth, everybody wants some. Cludier isn't one to be wooed so easily, though. He needs to be romanced a little, and tells Timmy no thanks, and asks for him to step back and then utters one of the most bizarre lines I've ever heard. you made a lifetime out of being adorable, sexy, in a lost little boy kind of way. I'm sorry, what? It's lines like that that fuel the myth that the Catholic Church is full of child molesters. And when did Timmy turn gay come to think of it? Last time we saw him, he was holding on to the memory of Shirley flashing her pubes at him. Despite Claudio referring to Timmy's childlike qualities, he says that throwing a baby in the trash is a man's crime, and that it's time for Timmy to be one, as he leaves the scene and Timmy picks up a weight that seems to have just been left on the floor rather than being put back on the rack. A blatant disregard of gym Etiquette, as we fade to black. Over in the interview room, Rebodeau is finishing up a visit with his son Alex, the first time that we've seen him since series 2, who leaves as Malice enters. He asks if Ribedo had a good visit, which Rebedo says that he did, but it also came with the news that Alex Jr.'s health has taken a turn for the worse. You'll remember, of course, back in Series 2, the inmates coming together to raise funds for Ribido's grandson to help send him to Disneyland. That's some seed-planting for a future episode, though, as the pair are soon interrupted by the arrival of Norma, who Ribido is meeting for the first time. Norma tells Ribido that Boosmalis has told us so much about him, as Ribido jokes about hoping that it was nothing good as he then leaves so that these two lovebirds can have some time together. It's all kind of sweet, but also quite sickly at the same time. It's a difficult balance to achieve. Norma asks if Boozmalis has asked whoever he needs to about them getting married, is saying that he has an appointment with Leo the next day. Norma wonders if there'll be any sort of problem, but Boozmalis seems confident that things will go fine, and the two of them kiss to close the scene, again bordering the sweet sick divide cut to nighttime in M-City where Boos Malice is continuing to dig the hole, as Rebodeau provides some history about his deceased fiancée, Maggie.
2: We were already engaged to be married, Maggie and I, when we learned that she was pregnant. Today, that's no big deal, but back in 65, and given her family's position in society out of wedlock meant scandal. Still, we could have weathered the storm together. Maggie was... Oh, Maggie. That's enough for him. Two weeks before the wedding, I stabbed Norton Pratt in the neck. And Maggie, she died in childbirth. My beautiful Maggie. I wish you all the happiness in the world, Agamemnon. Thank you, Bob.
3: I do want to dance at your wedding. Even though we're four years plus into the show, and Ribodeau having been there from the very beginning, we've only had a few passing references to his life on the outside. But every now and again, the show will give us a great scene that fills in those gaps, ultimately reminding us that these men have left an entire world behind when coming to ours. George Morphogen hasn't had many scenes which he could really call his own, but this is one of them without a doubt. He's captivating in this scene, almost Brando-like in his delivery, and him looking at himself in the pod glass, looking at what his life has become rather than making one with Maggie and even struggling to finish making his point about how much he clearly loved her, was a real tearjerker. The determination in his voice when he tells Boos that he wants to dance at his friend's wedding was a great moment too, you're really rooting for things to work out for them here, even if what they're doing is in many ways wrong. Cut to Solitary, where Boos Maliz is back on janitorial duty, mopping the floor, when a voice comes from Omar's cell trying to get his attention, Omar telling Boos Maliz that he knows about his dirty little secret. And much like the All-American Reject song of the same name, they go around a time or two just to waste some time before Omar finally gets to the point about how on the night before he was thrown back in Solitary, he saw Boos Maliz digging his tunnel. Busmalis continues to play dumb, hoping that Omar will just drop it, but Omar isn't happy with being insulted, the mood changing as Boosmalis asks what Omar wants to keep quiet. Omar tells Boosmalis that he doesn't want anything from him, but that he may use the information to get out of solitary, which, yeah, I can see him doing. He hasn't got any allegiance to Boosmalis. What does he care if someone finds out about the tunnel? Boosmalis begs Omar to stay quiet, telling him that he's due to get married soon, and even offers to pay Omar for his silence, Omar again asking what does he care if Bousmalis is getting married, and what use is money to him in solitary. Before they can finish their negotiation, Officer Smith moves Bousmalis along and closes the hatch on Omar's cell, as we go to McManus' office where he and Leo are having the meeting that Bousmalis mentioned to Norma. Leo tells Bousmalis that he'll allow someone to get married in the prison only as a reward for good behaviour. Bousmalis insists that he's very well behaved, as Leo reminds him that he dug a tunnel and escaped along with Miguel, causing Leo a great amount of embarrassment. Bousmalis tries to reason with Leo, saying that he did recapture them both, as McManus offers his support saying that Bousmalis is sorry for what he did, and that they could do with a little romance around the place. Leo takes a moment before agreeing to allow the marriage, but only on the proviso that Boosmalis swears that he won't dig another tunnel, and that if he finds out that Bousmalis is lying to him, then it's off to solitary with him, and he'll never see Norma again. Busmalis swears on his father's grave and his mother's life, as well as his honour as a scout, that he won't dig anymore, Leo giving the okay for him to make the arrangements. This scene was reminiscent of the one from when Jefferson Keane went to McManus and asked to be allowed to marry Mavis way back in Series 1, Episode 2, where McManus was willing to allow the marriage, but Leo wasn't. Leo mentioning in that scene that a marriage would be seen as a reward for Keane, who Leo at the time didn't view as having deserved it. And he also made a point about how marriage involves two people living together, which obviously plays into Boosmalie's enormous situation as well. It was only through speaking to Saeed that Leo allowed Keane's marriage to take place, something which ultimately played into Saeed's plan of causing the riot at the end of the series. So either Leo has softened his stance on allowing marriages, good behaviour considered, or perhaps he's learned not to simply do it as a favour to someone to gain their trust. At Lights Out, Boosmalis has taken the decision to fill in the hole that he was digging, something which he says he's never done before, saying that it almost feels like murder. Which is a very dark joke when you recall that he weakened the support beams of the tunnel that he dug back in Series 2, which then collapsed on and killed Mark Mack and his Aryan friend. We get another use of the POV shot looking out of the tunnel as Rebido tells Boosmalis to get a move on. Boosmalis climbs down into the tunnel as Rebido keeps watching for passing COs. Instead of that, though, he sees Omar being brought back to M-City, Omar locking eyes with Rebido from across the unit. He turns to tell Bousmalis the bad news, but we soon hear a clatter on something metallic, as well as is saying, uh-oh, as he quickly makes his way out of the tunnel, saying that he hit something. A slight noise then erupts into a gushing geyser of water as the lights come on and Officer Armstrong enters the pod. Rebido does his best to play things off by shrugging his shoulders, but I think it's safe to say that the two of them have been caught red-handed, as we see a still-soaking wet Bousmalis being escorted to his new cell in solitary, the cell having recently been vacated by Omar. Supreme tells him to get digging as Bousmalis makes his way by, as we then see a dejected Bousmalis take a seat on his bed to close out Act 3. I think you may. Oh, shit!
1: What's the matter? I hit something!
2: Oh,
0: jeez! Start digging, boost Malice.
3: So Act 4 opens up with Augustus detailing about how the previous year the Hatfields and the McCoys sat down together to make peace and end their feud after what seems like 150 years. He also mentions about how some believe the brouhaha, which is an excellent word to describe the whole thing, as having started over a stolen pig, while others believe it to have started over a woman. I won't go into too much detail about the feud here, as that's an entire podcast in and of itself but it dates back to the days of the American Civil War, and it's believed to have started following Devil and Hatfield taking credit for the killing of most Christian Klein in 1863, so not quite the 150 years that Augustus mentioned here, or at least not at the time of broadcast. As for the stolen pig theory, that was a real incident and caused the escalation of the feud in around 1878, a matter which was taken all the way to the local justice of the peace who ruled in favour of the Hatfields following testimony from a Bill Statton, a relative of both families. Statton was killed in June 1880 by Sam and Paris McCoy, although both men were later acquitted on self-defence grounds. The started-over-a-woman theory occurred after Rosanna McCoy began a relationship with Johnson Hatfield, in which Rosanna left to go live with the Hatfields in West Virginia, although she would return to the family the following year after the breakup of the relationship. If you've ever played Red Dead Redemption 2, there's a section of missions in the game's third chapter called The Curse of True Love, which is heavily influenced by this part of the feud. Other key events in the feud's history include the New Year Massacre in 1888, as well as the Battle of Grapevine Creek between 1880 and 1891, both of which resulted in several deaths in both families. Later generations of the family have embraced the feud for financial gain, including an appearance in 1979 on the popular game show Family Feud, as well as the completion of the Hatfield & McCoy Historic Site Restoration Project in 1999. The sit-down meeting that Augustus references here occurred in 2000 when Bo and Ron McCoy, great-great-great-grandsons to family patriarch Randolph, organised a joint family reunion which was attended by more than 5,000 members of both families. Despite this joint family reunion, it would be another three years until an official end to hostilities was called, when on June 14th 2003 in Pikeville, Kentucky, the McCoy cousins along with Rio Hatfield declared an official truce. Cut to Floria doing some typing and wearing a very 90s sweater despite it being the new millennium. Floria seems to have earned herself some fans since starting at Oz 2, as LaPresti tells her that the song playing on the radio is his favourite with Johnson calling him on his bullshit, saying that he doesn't even know what it is. I did try and see if I could tell what it was, but it's too low in the mix to make anything out, it's probably just some generic pop from the day. Poet and Augustus are also sat in the reception area. Augustus asking Floria whereabouts she's from, Floria telling him that she's from the Jane Street Project. Augustus tells her, Get out of town! Me too! Well, I mean nearby, and that he grew up on MLK in Southern. Quick look on the old Google map shows us that Jane Street isn't that far from the Chelsea Market where the show was filmed, probably only about a mile or so. While Augustus, I feel, might not be being quite truthful, as if we head south from Jane Street, MLK Place in Brooklyn is about 30 minutes away, while the only other Martin Luther King related places are the Martin Luther King High School for Law, Advocacy and Community Justice and Martin Luther King Boulevard both of which are situated north of Jane Street, so clearly Augustus is trying anything to try and impress Floria here. Poet seems to be going more for the infatuated puppy approach, telling Floria that he loves her eyes. Sensing a threat to his womanising crown, McManus enters the scene, noticing the apparent cue to meet with Leo, Floria telling him, yeah, and he isn't even in yet. I'd like to think that Floria is blissfully unaware to the obvious legion of male fans she's acquired in such a short time but she knows what's going on, she ain't daft. Sensing that the men are there purely because they have individual boners, McManus asks what their business with Leo is, with Augustus being there to present a petition to get cable TV in MC, as Poet says that broadcast television sucks, a not-so-subtle middle finger to any networks that might have turned the show down when it was originally pitched. McManus tells Augustus that they should have brought the petition to him, the reasons for why they didn't being pretty obvious, as he tells Johnson to take them back to MC which they do after saying their own special goodbyes to Floria. Lepresti tells McManus that when Leo arrives, he can go ahead of him. McManus joking that Lepresti has been so generous, as Lepresti tells him, well, you're such a busy man, as Leo finally arrives and greets everyone, asking for a couple of minutes to get himself ready for the day. Lepresti shouting, sure, take your time, no bother. I actually quite like Lepresti in this scene, probably because it's the most like an actual person we've seen him act. Floria tries to stop Leo from entering his office, but she doesn't quite make it, as Leo takes a look around his freshly decorated office, which would explain why all the meetings so far in the episode have been happening in McManus' office. And it's got new varnished wooden panels in place of painted walls, he's got a nice bookshelf adorned with some justice scales, his commendations proudly displayed on the wall above the desk, which has now been moved to the corner, although he does have another one where that desk used to be. This is a lovely office that Floria has put together, but Manus is impressed too, asking if Floria can do his office next, as Leo tells her that it's fantastic, and that she's fantastic, which gets a big smile out of Floria. We touched on this briefly in the previous episode, that certain set redesigns will play into how this series ends, and the the behind-the-scenes goings-on regarding the show's filming location. Without getting too far ahead of ourselves, this scene must have been filmed after the show received word that they would be returning for a fifth series, But we'll talk more about that another time. Cut to Leo and Floria making their way through the gates en route to the cafeteria, which has been set up for the Wardens Conference, Floria telling Leo that the other wardens are set to arrive around 10. We found out a couple of episodes ago that the state has another 40 prisons at its disposal, so it stands to reason that we should be meeting all of those other wardens, while Governor Devlin is due to arrive around 11.30. That's not the only news, though, as Floria has apparently got a lead on a new apartment for Leo which is only six blocks away, and that he could move in more or less straight away as it's fully furnished, and it even comes with its own maid service. That all sounds lovely, however Leo just wants to know if Floria has heard anything from his wife, which sadly she hasn't. The switch in the conversation happens right as the two of them head down the dark corridor, a great piece of symbolism right there, Leo literally being in a dark place as his divorce continues to unfold. He asks Floria to send Mary some flowers, as Floria tells Leo about the message she received from Mary's lawyer, asking who they should be contacting regarding the divorce. Leo loses his temper, cursing at Floria, which seems to unsettle her somewhat. This obviously being the first time that she's witnessed a Leo outburst after what was a very successful start to the job last episode. Perhaps the realisation of what she's got herself into is dawning on her. As Leo admits to this being his first divorce, Floria offers to find someone who can help him through the process, offering the services of her attorney brother to help find the right guy, as Leo tells her to send Mary the flowers anyway as he leaves. We cut to the cafeteria which is hosting, as indicated by the banner, the Regional Conference of National Wardens G. Not sure how you have a regional conference for National Wardens, surely those two things contradict each other? And I'm assuming that the G stands for group, the framing doesn't exactly clue us in. The word conference is doing a lot of heavy lifting here, as it's basically a bunch of stalls that have been set out in the cafeteria. One of which is the Bob Barker company displaying different types of prison uniforms, presumably the price is right on those, and there's another which is displaying some kind of sink-toilet combo, with the sink directly over the toilet, meaning that you can brush your teeth while taking a whiz. And there's a bunch of other ones scattered around the room, but the one I want to go and check out is Smith and Warren Badges presumably selling limited edition collector's badges and pins from the various prisons. As Leo takes a walk around, he's greeted by a familiar voice and brown turtleneck, as Martin Querns makes his return to the show. I say return, he hasn't really been gone. We last saw him two episodes ago telling Leo to destroy the incriminating evidence on the Adebisi tapes when Jack Eldridge was filming in Oz. He congratulates Leo on the conference, as Leo says, I should have known you'd turn up. Quern saying that he should have expected him now that Querns is running Lardner. Which, talk about landing on your feet, sacked from your unit manager job only to wind up as warden somewhere else? He's come up smelling of roses right there. Turns out Leo tried to put the kibosh on that even happening, saying that he called the commissioner and told him exactly what he thought of Querns possibly taking over the position, Querns firing back with a jibe about how much influence Leo has. In one of my absolute favourite Leo moments, rather than try and match wits with Querns, he simply tells him, Fuck off. As Quern switches the conversation to the well-being of Clayton, who's been up at Lardner awaiting his sentence for the attempted assassination of Devlin. Quern says that Clayton isn't doing great, the prisoners all hate him because he used to be a CO, as Leo reckons that all the COs must hate him because they consider him a turncoat. Apparently Clayton has been getting into a lot of fights, and that right now he's in protective custody, but Querns isn't sure that Clayton will survive the year. This conversation is cut short as the room begins to applaud the arrival of, as Querns puts it, the main attraction, as Devlin enters the cafeteria, milking the response for all it's worth as he makes his way through on crutches. Leo tells Querns that he wants Clayton transferred to Oz, saying that he can protect him, but Querns is pessimistic as Devlin makes his way over to them, But Kissing Querns tells Devlin that he's getting around great on his crutches, as Devlin, with a claim that wouldn't seem out of place being uttered by Donald Trump, tells him that his physical therapist says that he's recuperating faster than any patients he's ever had, and that he expects to be off the crutches in a matter of weeks. As I've mentioned before, this is six months on from Clayton shooting Devlin, perhaps even more now, and there's no real answer as to how long the recovery time is to an injury like the one Devlin suffered. It would all depend on whether he suffered any nerve damage, as well as his general health leading up to the event. It's not impossible that Devlin could make a full recovery in this time, but more often than not, people would be dealing with the consequences of this type of injury for the rest of their lives. Devlin also congratulates Leo on his little shindig, and mentions that there were some people who felt that he shouldn't come today, given that he is returning to the scene of the crime, but smug cunt Devlin isn't one to shy away from that kind of publicity and tells Leo that without Clayton's help, referring to Clayton as Leo's boy, Alva Case might have won the election, and asks Leo to remind him to send Clayton a thank you card, as he hobbles off to another part of the conference, but not before giving Leo a patronising tap on the shoulder with one of his crutches. Despite having just made his comeback here, this is the last that we'll be seeing of Martin Querns for some time, but he's not gone completely, so have no fear, we will be seeing him again down the road. Cut to receiving a discharge where, after an undetermined passage of time, Clayton has indeed been transferred to Oz, decked out in his orange jumpsuit and sporting a number of bruises to his face. Leo arrives and is shocked to see what's happened to Clayton, who tells Leo that it's good to be home. He asks which unit he's going to be housed in, expecting maybe to wind up in M-City with his old foes, but Leo is sending him to Unit J, the cop unit. Clayton tells Leo no way, as if he has any choice in the matter, something which Leo even comments on, as Clayton gathers his things. Bit of a plot hole here, in that if Oz has its own dedicated unit for cops who have been imprisoned, why was Bruno Gergen assigned to M-City and not Unit J? Flash cuts to the crime flashback of one of Clayton's new Unit J associates, Alvin Yude, where we see him roughing up some punk teen in what appears to be a small-town police department. To be fair, the kid does spit on Alvin, so quite frankly he got what was coming to him, but he's handcuffed with his hands behind a chair, and Alvin takes things too far, punching and slapping the kid a total of ten times before being restrained by a colleague. He is convicted of aggravated assault of a minor, and sentenced to 12 years, up for parole in seven. Alvin Eude is played by veteran actor Tom Lijon. Born September 10, 1940 in New Orleans, Louisiana, Tom attended the St. Albans School in Washington, D.C. After suffering a leg injury playing football, Tom developed an interest in theatre acting, leading to Tom attending Yale University. Graduating as an English major in 1962, as well as being a member of the university's Skull and Bone Society, Tom was discovered by Tennessee Williams, who witnessed Tom's performance as Kilroy and Camino Real staged by the Yale Dramatic Association leading to Tom becoming one of the most sought-after young actors in the New York area throughout the remainder of the decade. During this time, Tom would share an apartment with fellow actor Sam Walterson, splitting the $25 per month rent equally. In addition to appearing in New York Theatre, Tom also earned credits in Regional Theatre, with appearances in Billy Budd at Washington DC's Arena Stage, and Hard Travelling at the Actors Theatre of Louisville in Kentucky. Tom also made his Broadway debut in 1963, appearing as Steve Kozlek in Have I Got A Girl For You. Moving into film acting in 1964, Tom made his debut in a minor role in the film Nothing But A Man, and would make his TV debut two years later, appearing in an episode of ABC's Hawk. Tom's breakthrough role came in 1969, appearing as Horton Fenney in the western musical Paint Your Wagon, as well as returning to the Broadway stage in Angela and Love Is A Time Of Day. Along with roles on TV in The Jackie Gleason Show and A World Apart and in film in 1971's Jump, Tom would appear in Bang the Drum Slowly in 1973, playing the role of Piney. Tom would also appear uncredited on the film's soundtrack on a rendition of The Streets of Laredo. Returning to TV in 1974 for the TV movie The Execution of Private Slovak, Tom racked up appearances on shows such as Stasky and Hutch, Charlie's Angels, and Rossetti and Ryan as well as marrying his wife, Catherine Clark on New Year's Eve in 1976. Tom would land his first recurring role, appearing as Lucas Prentice for six episodes on The Young and the Restless, appearing on the show between 1978 and 1982, a year in which he would also appear in the film Young Doctors in Love. Throughout the remainder of the 1980s, Tom would have recurring roles on Loving, playing the role of Billy Bristow, as well as playing William Addison in Santa Barbara, while in 1989 he returned to film acting, appearing as Mr. Ingalls in Cutting Glass. In 1994, Tom appeared as Dr. Snow in an episode of All My Children, while in 1996 he would return to the Broadway stage after a near 30-year absence, understudying for David Schramm in Tartruth at the Circle in the Square Theatre, before appearing here on Oz. So over in Unit J, which looks suspiciously similar to Unit E, the AIDS unit, as well as the psychiatric unit from back in Series 2, Alvin asks Claire where lunch is, saying that he's starving. This is just the latest unit that we've seen Claire working, following stints in M-City in Solitary, which didn't exactly work out well. This is probably the best place for her, in that there's only a handful of inmates that she needs to keep an eye on, and former cops to boot. She tells Alvin that lunch will get there the same time that it gets there every other day, as Alvin says that back home they used to have a female deputy sheriff that was just like Claire, saying that she was tough and took no bullshit. Claire reckons that Alvin and the other officers in what she calls That Dink Little Farm Town probably couldn't handle that, but Alvin says they didn't have to, and that one night she got drunk at a bar in Spencer, which is not a real place, and got gangbanged by a bunch of bikers on the pool table. Claire doesn't look impressed at this anecdote, but that doesn't stop Alvin asking why they haven't got a pool table in the unit and I'll be honest, I was worrying about where that story was heading until he cracked that little joke at the end there. Leo enters the unit and introduces Clayton, a formality more than anything, as obviously he and Claire already know each other, as Claire directs him to his cell. As Clayton gets settled, Leo takes Claire aside, asking her to make sure that no harm comes to Clayton, but Claire tells him that she isn't a miracle worker. Leo heads out of the unit, but as he goes, he stops to see how Johnny Basil the former Desmond Moe is holding up, Johnny saying that he couldn't be better. Poet makes his way through the unit with a lunch cart, so it turns out that Alvin didn't have to wait too long after all, and he tells Johnny that he's had a special lunch made up for him, saying that he's put a little extra seasoning on it. Johnny asks whether or not Poet has spat in his food, but Poet has apparently committed the far worse crime of pissing in it, Johnny pushing it aside not willing to take the risk, which is probably a smart choice. Random aside here, but I can remember this time when I was at university, there was a takeaway a couple of streets away from where I lived. I don't think it's there anymore, but one night when I was in there getting some food, the proprietors of this takeaway were having a load of problems with someone who was accusing them of having spat in his burger, and apparently this was the second burger he'd had from them that had supposedly been spat in. To this day, I'll never understand why they thought they'd do that, or how he came to the conclusion that they'd done that, or if he was just hitting them up for some free burgers. But it's a mystery that still haunts me one thing that i do like about unit j is that alvin and johnny and i suppose clayton now they've got a little table that they all sit around to have their meals at i imagine this is to avoid them going to the cafeteria where they're likely to get into some altercation with another inmate due to them being cops and all but i just like the communal table that they have there alvin asks johnny about clayton asking whether or not he's the guy that shot devlin and that maybe clayton should have spent more time on the shooting range That snide comment sends Clayton into a rage, storming out of his cell and grabbing Alvin by the shirt and calling him a motherfucker, as Claire and another CO break things up, as we see flashbacks of Johnny knocking Bruno down the elevator shaft one more time. I can't even remember how many times we've seen that now, that must be at least the fourth time that we've seen it, as we flash cut to Johnny meeting with his commanding officer, a Lieutenant Schmand, played here by Barry Shabaka Henley. Born September 15th, 1954, and once again in New Orleans, Louisiana, Barry moved to San Francisco at a young age, where he attended the San Francisco Polytechnic High School, receiving his first acting audition at the age of 17, with his early stage appearances coming for the San Francisco Mime Troupe, Making his film debut in 1988 with a minor role in Nincompoop, Barry's 1991 TV debut never made it to air, appearing in a pilot for the show Clippers. Barry would, however, land the recurring role of Willis Tillis in The Royal Family on CBS for eight episodes. Between 1992 and 1994, Barry had a recurring role on Rock, the sitcom starring Oz alumni Charles S. Dutton. Throughout the remainder of the 90s, Barry would appear on TV in roles on ER, Married with Children, The Client, and NYPD Blue, as well as in the films Lord of Illusions and Devil in a Blue Dress. In 1998, Barry appeared in the films Fallen, Bullworth and How Stella Got a Groove Back, as well as appearing in Rush Hour. Barry also appeared in Patch Adams and Life in 1998 and 1999 respectively, while on TV he appeared for one episode of The Steve Harvey Show and City of Angels in 2000. Also in 2000, Barry won an Outstanding Ensemble Performance Drama Desk Award along with his co-stars for Jitney, before appearing here on Oz.
2: Ronald Gergen wasn't well liked, yeah. So that doesn't excuse you pushing him down an elevator shaft. But I think most people in the department believe that you did what you had to do. Not Nancy. She didn't come to my trial. She hadn't been here once. I'm not gonna lie to you, John. Nancy's angry. You were her partner. She feels that you betrayed her trust. What's part about being in this place is you can't talk to the people you need to talk to in order to set things straight. Look, I'll tell you the other reason that I'm here. Your wife called. She's very upset that you refused to see her or Robbie. I can't. Doesn't Abby understand? I can't face her. Or him. My son. She wants to come for a visit, without Robbie. No. John. No. Look, she loves you and your silence is killing her in the same way that Nancy's silence is hurting you. It was an honour serving under you, sir.
3: We get a quick scene of Johnny in his cell at night looking at a photo of his wife and child, followed by a flashback of Ronnie arriving in M-City and reuniting with Keller, as well as Beecher asking Keller if Ronnie likes to fool around. Back in the present, the lights are still off in M-City as Keller looks down from his pod trying to get a look in at Beecher and Ronnie. The alarm sounds as the lights come on to begin the day, as Murphy mans the switches to allow everyone out of their pods for the count. Beecher and Ronnie make their way out of the pod looking very friendly with each other, as we hear Beecher and Morales' numbers being read out for the count, which is odd as I'm fairly sure that their pods are nowhere near each other, and surely Ronnie's number should be coming either side of Beecher's. It's not like the count makes any sense anyway. Even here we get 00M871 Morales, followed by 96G552, who is also called as Morales, but that's Chico's number, so who knows what's going on with the count these days. Keller heads down to take a shower, where he runs into Ronnie, who's already in there. Joking about whether or not Ronnie is jacking off, Ronnie saying that he's giving Magic Johnson his morning stretch, which is a great euphemism, Keller says that Magic Johnson best not have got any action the previous night. Ronnie asks what Keller means, as Keller says about the COs having rules against the inmates fucking, Ronnie laughing at the idea of Keller towing the line. Keller says that he's done so since Ronnie got with Beecher, and he tells Ronnie that he doesn't want him sticking his prick into that prick, calling Beecher a slut and nothing but trouble. Ronnie looks a little forlorn and wishes that Keller had told him that before, it turns out that he and Beecher have already seen some action, Ronnie saying that Beecher gave him a blowjob deluxe. Not sure exactly what the difference between a regular and a deluxe is, but I'm sure you can use your imagination. For all you Chris Maloney fans out there, of which I know there are many, prime shot of him in the buff right here, although we'll somehow see even more of him later on. That line about Magic Johnson having best not gotten any action and Beecher being a slut and all. I suppose that's a reference to Irvin Magic Johnson, who retired from the NBA in 1991 after contracting HIV due to his promiscuous sex life. With HIV and AIDS still being relatively misunderstood at the time, there were rumours of Magic Johnson being gay, although he denied such claims and admitted to having sex with, as he puts it, harems of women during his career. Cut to the lunch line where Keller approaches Beecher telling him that he knows what Beecher is up to fucking Ronnie to make him jealous, and calls Beecher a miserable little cunt, Keller not mixing his words here. Pointing out that Keller killed the last two guys that Beecher slept with, a bold move considering this is happening in the cafeteria with staff around, Beecher asks if Keller is going to kill Ronnie too, as Keller slaps Beecher's lunch tray out of his hands, sending it flying across the room. As Keller does that, I got really confused at one point, because he knocks the tray towards the camera as we're looking at it, so everything goes to his left, Beecher's right. But in the background, a second or so after he hits it, you can see an orange go up into the air. It took me a couple of watches to click that either this orange from Beecher's tray has ricocheted around the cafeteria, or, as is more likely, another character in the background just happened to be throwing their own orange around at the same time. Over in the gym, Ronnie and Keller are both working out. Keller working his chest doing some machine curls, while Ronnie is at a nearby bench doing some dumbbell rows. It's all about the upper body with these two. Ronnie is trying to get his head around Keller's new outlook, saying that he used to be the king of the scams, and could hustle a cop out of his badge, but he somehow got busted for robbing a grocery store and reckless driving, figuring that not to be like Keller at all. Keller says that after his last divorce he went into a bit of a tailspin, Ronnie saying that he remembers, and that there were a lot of drugs and a lot of college boys. Keller thinks that in retrospect he robbed that store, which he admits was the stupidest thing he could have done, because deep down he wanted to get caught, his brain saying that maybe he was due some time off the street. Ronnie figures that 88 years more than covers a bit of time, as he settles down on the incline bench. Seeing this as his opportunity, Keller stands over Ronnie, and after a tense moment, kisses him. Ronnie sort of pushes him away, but Keller goes straight back in for another, this time Ronnie being a bit more receptive. Menio passes by, and in his own special way tells them to break it up, although I imagine that was one of his more restrained responses. Menio always strikes me as a guy with old-school value, shall we say. He does have to resort to whacking the fence with his nightstick to actually get Ronnie and Keller apart, telling them to get a room. As Ronnie laughs, but also appears quite flustered at having had a kiss laid on him like that. Later in the day, lights out is called in them city, as Beecher, who's been waiting patiently for that to happen, slivers over like a snake to Ronnie's bunk and reaches for Ronnie's penis. But Ronnie tells him no. Beecher asks what's the matter, as Ronnie confesses that he and Keller fucked earlier in the afternoon, apparently for the first time, and he says that it was great. Ronnie lays it on thick, saying that for years Keller was like a brother to him and he's gone along with his Ponzi schemes, as Beecher looks like he's about to explode. Ronnie then claims that he feels as though Keller loves him, which Beecher scoffs at. Beecher tells Ronnie that Keller doesn't love him and that this is just another Ponzi, which Ronnie admits that, yeah, maybe it is, but as they're in Oz, what difference does it make? Beecher retreats having been rejected and makes his way over to the Podglass, looking up towards Keller who pulls down his tighty-whities and moons Beecher, pulling his butt cheeks apart. And yep, there is Christopher Maloney's anus, in what I think is the first and only time that I've seen a man's anus on mainstream television. Agent Taylor pops in for a visit, first time that we've seen him in Series 4B, and he's interviewing Ronnie about his past with Keller.
4: So you were Keller's friend before he got arrested? Yeah, I knew him, sure, yeah. On May 2nd, 1998, Keller was at a gay bar. We picked up one Bryce Tibbets. He drove Tibbets across the state line to a forest, where he sodomized, tortured, and murdered the young man. What's that got to do with me? Did Keller ever mention killing Bryce Tibbets? Nah. How about Mark Karachi? No. him Lewis? Nope, none of that. Too bad. You see, if he had mentioned these murders to you and you'd been willing to testify, you could have gotten your sentence reduced from 13 years to say five. Five? A deal is out there, waiting to be reached. I gotta call my lawyer. You do that,
2: Ronnie.
3: You make that call. Over in MC, Not That John Carpenter is still the reigning champion on Up Your Ante. I'm assuming that you stay on the more you win, but are replaced after a certain number of episodes. Today's conundrum revolves around which position is not mentioned in the famous Abbott and Costello routine, who's on first. A fantastic piece of wordplay, which if you've never heard it or seen it, go and listen to it or watch it immediately. Or after you finish with this episode, of course. Omar says that he hates baseball, which, sorry America, I'm sort of with him on that. It's a bit boring. While Augustus says that he hates Abbott and Costello, which I don't agree with him on. Abbott and Costello were great. Not that John Carpenter is being helped this week by Didi Kahn, who made a screen-acting debut in 1973, appearing in the TV movie Genesis 2, but is best known for her role as Frenchie in 1977's Grease, a role she would reprise in the film's 1982 sequel. Despite Dee's obvious clue, Miguel gets the answer wrong, thinking that the answer is shortstop, when everyone knows I don't care who's on shortstop. Beecher, much like in previous episodes, gets the answer correct, even letting out a smug sigh as he does, as Poet continues to complain about how they need to get cable installed. Ronnie approaches Beecher, hoping to utilise his previous legal expertise to run the FBI's offer by him, but Beecher tells him that he doesn't work pro bono, meaning that he doesn't work for free. Ronnie says that he'll make the consultation worth Beecher's while, and gives Beecher's penis a quick rub, outside the trousers, of course, Beecher saying, I'm sure we can come to an arrangement, as the two of them head off. Later in the library, Beecher spots Keller, and to Keller's surprise drops the cat-and-mouse games, informing Keller that Ronnie is about to rat on him to the FBI for the series of homosexual murders in exchange for a reduced sentence. Keller doesn't believe Beecher, calling him a liar and saying that he's just jealous. Having tried to get through to him, Beecher leaves telling Keller to believe what he wants, and to write to him from death row. Great little scene this one, Lee Tegerson, when he turns on the seriousness, is really good. Don't get me wrong, I liked him when he was as mad as a box of frogs in Series 2, I think I made that abundantly clear at the time, but when it's time to knuckle down and get serious, he's one of the best on the show. Cut to the office supply room where Bian was murdered last episode, yet for some reason inmates are still allowed to go in there unsupervised, as Keller is stacking boxes while Ronnie works on fixing a printer. Keller asks Ronnie who it was that wanted to talk to him, something which we haven't seen Ronnie mention to Keller, so it must have happened off-screen as Ronnie tells him that it was the FBI grilling him about a bank job they pulled in Buffalo, but he doesn't go into any further details. He fixes the printer and Keller says that he's amazing, able to fix anything, as well as having many other gifts and a great imagination, as he stacks a small TV monitor on a nearby shelf. Keller says that Ronnie also has a way with words, which Ronnie laughs at somewhat embarrassed, as Keller tells him that he's heard about Ronnie telling stories about him and encounters he may have had with certain young men. Ronnie swears that he hasn't said anything about that, which considering the College Boys line from earlier implies that he knows about the murders having happened, which would mean that Keller has confessed to him at some point, but he swears on his life that he hasn't spoken about it to anyone. Keller pulls him in for a hug and that Ronnie swearing on his life is enough for him, turning on the charm a little bit more by giving Ronnie another kiss before telling him to suck his dick. As Keller removes his shirt, Ronnie says that he would never jabber on him, but admits that they did make him an offer, but that he turned them down outright. Ronnie gets to his knees and begins to give Keller a blowjob, the quality of which is unknown. I'm assuming this is just a regular, as Keller holds on to two pieces of storage racking. As Ronnie continues to pleasure him, Keller says that he sometimes thinks that he killed all those men because he wanted to kill the part of himself that he despises. He places one hand on Ronnie's head, then the other, and snaps Ronnie's neck a sickening sound indicating Ronnie's demise as his lifeless body collapses to the floor. I liked the fake-out of making it look like Keller was going to whack Ronnie in the head with that TV monitor. It made the next snap all the more surprising when it happened. Good job there. Augustus narrates about how when someone takes revenge, they're paying the highest compliment possible, as Keller zips his trousers up and grabs his shirt before leaving the room, as Ronnie joins Augustus' conveyor belt of dead bodies to close the episode.
4: There we go with that.
0: You are amazing, Ronnie. You fix anything, can't you? Some people are just mechanically inclined, that's all. You got many gifts, Ronnie. Uh, you got a great imagination. Got away with words. Me? I <laughs> hear you've been telling a lot of fantastic stories. Huh? Stories about me in my encounter with certain young men. Chris, I didn't say nothing about that, I swear.
2: You sure? Yeah, on my life, man. Come on.
0: You swear on your life, that's enough for me. Suck my dick. I mean, Chris, you know, I would never jabber on you, man. They did make me an offer. But I turned those fed fucks down right there. I told him, you know, kiss my ass. It ain't happening. You know, sometimes I think I killed all those guys because I wanted to kill the part of me I despise. take revenge on somebody, you're actually paying them the highest compliment possible. It's like saying, you've affected my life to such an extent that I must reciprocate. I must affect your life as deeply as you have mine. Revenge may be the ultimate hallmark card. Yeah. When you think of it like that, the
3: cliche is true. Revenge is sweet. So there you go, Series 4, Episode 11, Revenge is Sweet. There seems to be a pattern emerging in the latter half of Series 4, whereby episodes seem to be swinging wildly from the sublime to the ridiculous. The Chinese refugees, who took up more or less the final quarter of the previous episode, barely appeared in this one, and with a lack of evidence to convict prime suspect Burr, it just sort of peters out and ends up meaning very little. As it was presented here, it just leaves you wondering what exactly was the point. However, there is a deleted scene focused around that that I'll come back to in a moment. Miguel's return to M-City is a much welcome addition to proceedings, as is the reappearance of Jackson Vahue, after apparently just keeping to himself for the last two years in what I can only assume was Unit B. However, and as I alluded to earlier in the episode, we also got the beginning of the atrocious ageing drug storyline, something which, no matter which way you slice it, is completely at odds at what we've come to expect on the show. I know I like to sometimes draw on elements of the real world and how the consequences of a character's actions would unfold on the show, but there are times where you just have to let things go for the sake of story and drama, like how the fight between Cyril and Chucky in the boxing tournament wouldn't have even gone ahead with a lack of protective headwear or how any number of the attacks and fights between inmates, or worse still, the murders of individuals, often get brushed aside with little consequence due to the lack of evidence. This, however, you're basically asking people to forget everything that they understand about science and how the human body works. Like I mentioned earlier, if this were to appear on a science fiction show or something of that ilk, I'd probably look the other way. You expect those kind of things in science fiction. This, however, is Oz. Sometimes it can be brutally realistic, sometimes it can be over the top, but not until now has it become impossible to suspend your belief as far as what this storyline is asking you to. And as I mentioned earlier, this, for a lot of people, was what has become known as the Jumping the Shark moment, a point in which far-fetched events are included for the sake of novelty, which often results in a show's ultimate decline. I wouldn't say that I personally have reached that point yet, I didn't on any other time I watched the show, nor have I gone this go-round, However, being the age that I am compared to previous watches of the show, I'd probably say that I'm a lot less forgiving with it this time, in that I now see how ridiculous it actually is. Having said that, and if memory serves me correctly, there is far worse yet to come as we get towards the conclusion of the show, but that's something to discuss another time. It wasn't all doom and gloom for this episode, though. There were some really good moments in the section featuring and Boos Bousmalis, and the final segment revolving around Beecher, Keller and Ronnie was quite strong, and being featured in that closing segment again reinforced the feeling of Beecher being the show's default main character. I'm in two minds as far as the use of Ronnie on the show, though. On the one hand, Keller is no worse off with regards to the FBI investigation than he was before Ronnie arrived, while on the other it showed a desperate man willing to do anything to avoid going down for these murders of which he is accused, murders which it's slowly becoming clear he is guilty of. Even after all of the head games that the two of them have played on each other and continue to play on each other, having now reached the point of exposing their most private parts for all to see, Beecher giving Keller the heads up that Ronnie was about to rat him out to the FBI shows that Beecher still has feelings for Keller, even after all of this. It's hard to deny that they, Beecher perhaps more than Keller, seemingly do truly love each other, even if leaving a body lying is a somewhat twisted way of showing it. Get the fuck out of office. So, just the one deleted scene to talk about from this episode, which, as I mentioned a moment ago, is focused around the fallout of Bian's murder from the previous episode, in which Gao and McManus are meeting with Gonjin. A crestfallen McManus tells Gonjin that he knows about the struggles that he and the other refugees have had since arriving in the US, all of which have been compounded by the death of Bian. He's concerned that things may boil over between the refugees and the inmates, but he's pleading with Gonjin to be patient while they investigate Bian's death saying that they will find the killer and bring him to justice. Gonjin seems pessimistic, though, saying that they came to America to seek justice in the first place, and that they have in fact seen very little since arriving. Gao chimes in saying that the last thing they need now is for Gonjin or anybody else to go seeking revenge, especially as they can't say for sure who's guilty. Gonjin mentions Burr, which seen as McManus placed him inside the cage at the end of the previous episode would suggest that they feel he is the guilty party, with McManus saying that perhaps he is, but the culprit could also be using some reverse psychology, wanting the authorities to suspect Bear to push their own agenda. McManus asks Gonjin for his word that there won't be any retaliation, as Gonjin describes Bian as having been a brave man, something which he admits he isn't, describing himself as Nofu, Chinese for coward, as the scene closes. For an episode with revenge as its central theme, having McManus actively trying to discourage someone seeking vengeance might have been something worth exploring in the episode, and would have perhaps been a nice counterbalance to Bear effectively telling Morales and Chucky that he would exact his vengeance on them. Normally, I do tend to side with the show, and I'm understanding as to why a scene may have been cut, and while it perhaps does go a little long for what it's trying to convey, I think there could be a case made for having this one remain in the episode in some form, if for no other reason than to show that the refugees are reeling from having one of their group murdered. I can only assume that it was taken out for timing issues, but if you were to move the boost malice section of him meeting with Norma to discuss the wedding and him being sent to solitary after busting the water pipe to another episode, you could have maybe had this scene included. With a death toll of one for this episode, it's time for us to say goodbye to Ronnie Barlog, aka Brian Bloom. Since Leaving Oz, Brian's on-screen appearances have been limited, his most notable appearances coming in 2006's Smoke and Aces, and in 2013 in the role of Pike in the film adaptation of The A-Team, where Brian also earned his first writing credit. Along with roles on Law and & Order and The Blackout on TV, Brian has carved himself a very successful career as a voiceover artist, lending his voice to a number of video games including Halo 3, the Mass Effect series, Dead Space, 50 Cent Blood on the Sand, and Halo Wars to name just a few. In addition to contributing vocal performances to a number of games in the Call of Duty franchise, Brian also earned writing credits on the Call of Duty games Ghosts, Infinite Warfare, Mobile, Modern Warfare, and Modern Warfare 2. Brian has also provided voiceover work for a number of animated shows, including G.I. Joe Renegades, Batman the Brave and the Bold, The Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, Gravity Falls, and the 2012 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles reboot. At the time of recording, his most recent credits include the Star Wars The Old Republic Legacy of the Sith video game, as well as playing the role of Adam Strange in the animated movie Green Lantern, Beware My Power. Also leaving the show is Ping Hao, played by Stephen S. Chen. Oz was only one of a small number of acting roles that Stephen acquired in his acting career, with his sole post-Oz credit coming in 2010 for the movie Jonah Hex. At the time of recording, Stephen is listed as an executive producer on the documentary film The Believers, however that has been listed as being in post-production for several years. The Oz One & Done Club earned itself two new members, with Didi Con stopping by for a round of Up Your Ante, while Barry Shabaka Henley appeared briefly as Lieutenant Schmand. Post-Oz, Barry has remained acting, appearing in recurring roles on TV shows such as Close to Home, Heroes, Better Call Saul, Bosch, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and Bob Hart's Abishola. While on film, Barry has earned credits for Ali in 2001, The Terminal and Collateral in 2004, 2006's Miami Vice, with more recent roles coming in A Star is Born in 2018, and 2019's Dolomite is My Name. At the time of recording, Barry is listed to appear as Lysander O'Neill in the film Measure, currently listed as being in post-production. Also leaving the show is the episode's director, Goran Gajic, Since leaving Oz, Goran directed two episodes of the TV series Sheena, and returned to his native Serbia to direct 25 episodes of the TV series Vratis Sarod, and please forgive me if I've murdered the pronunciation of that. In 2016, Goran earned his first acting credit appearing in the film Herd. while in 2018 he appeared in the TV series Stado. At the time of recording, Goran's most recent credit is listed as being for the 2019 TV series Doug Moreau, where he gained directing credits on 11 episodes, as well as credits for co creator and co writer. My episode MVP, and in something of a surprise to myself once again, goes to Vern Schillinger. Despite threats to his new mentor from his second in command of the Aryans and their strongest biker ally, Schillinger hasn't resorted to violence whereas he may have done in the past he also seems truly focused on reconciling with Beecher. The request to begin the victim-offender interaction may have been greeted with a degree of shock from Pete, but his reading of Isaiah came across with heartfelt conviction, much different to the hatred he has spouted previously with his neo-nazi ideology. There is, however, a constant feeling that this is all going to come crumbling down at a moment's notice, but at this point in time, Schillinger is focused on burying his past feud in order to be an available grandfather for his incoming grandchild, so for those reasons, Schillinger wins the episode MVP. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so over on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Castbox, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, depending on where you are in the world, or wherever you get your podcast from. There you will find the first three series of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 4 so far, and you will also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes as well. Subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode, leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com, or on social media or on Instagram and Twitter where you can get all the updates about the podcast by following the handle at Podcast. Next time on Inside Oz, the first cut is often the deepest, while you could say that a sharp insult, Series 4, Episode 12, cuts like a knife, where Cyril and others begin to feel the effects of the ageing drug, the refugees have business with Morales before they're deported back to China, and Schillinger receives news as to Hank's whereabouts all of this and more but until then i have been neil thompson and i will catch you on the next episode of inside oz the original oz review podcast catch you later everyone